And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. It's the Novos Ordo Watch Trapcast. You've got to be kidding. Habemus Papa. You can't make the stuff up. And here we are. It is time again for Tradcast, the traditional Catholic podcast you don't have to be a set of accountants to enjoy or benefit from, but you might just end up becoming one. Welcome everyone to episode number 32 with a new theme song. Hope you like it. Trying to keep it informative, sophisticated and fun all at the same time. There is so much to talk about. We might as well delay no longer and get started. As things keep getting worse under Pope Francis in the Vatican, it seems that more and more people are becoming, shall we say, comfortable with the idea that perhaps Benedict XVI is the real Pope and Francis wasn't elected validly. For example, the former Catholic Answers radio host Patrick Coffin has recently made a push for that position. And of course, it is rather enticing for many because it provides a way out of the horrific mess that Francis has made, and at the same time, it appears to people not as extreme or far-reaching and inconvenient as sedevacantism. So, it functions pretty much like a pressure relief valve. And so, of course, for many, it is an attractive alternative to sedevacantism. Yet, what those who embrace that position seem to forget is that Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XVI, is no less of a modernist than Francis. He's just more polished about his heresies, and he camouflages a lot with traditional externals, like beautiful vestments and stuff, whereas Francis is like a bull in a china shop. Right? He just walks in and tramples on everything and doesn't care. So, In a sense, Benedict XVI is actually more dangerous than Francis because he makes himself look traditional while poisoning souls, whereas Francis doesn't really bother with that. But even the devil, St. Paul says, transforms himself into an angel of light in 2 Corinthians 11.14. The wolf in sheep's clothing will be able to devour many more sheep than the wolf undisguised. So that's important to keep in mind. Don't let anyone deceive you with external appearances. And we've covered this before in prior podcasts, but it's been a while, and I think that it might be a good idea to bring this up again, because the fact remains that regardless of whether you align yourself with Francis or with Benedict, 
Either way, you are guaranteed to get one thing. More Vatican II. Make no mistake about that. Benedict XVI is not a beacon of orthodoxy. He never was. The Novus Ordo Church was already a modernist sewer long before Francis came along. Francis is just putting everything on steroids. Before Francis was Benedict. Before Benedict was John Paul II. And before him was Paul VI. The difference between those may be one of style, but definitely not of substance. It may be one of degree, but not of kind. Let me give you a clear example of what utter trash Joseph Ratzinger preaches as Catholicism. In 1981, when Ratzinger was Archbishop of Munich, he gave a Lenten sermon in which he talked about original sin. Now, let's do a quick mental exercise. If you had to explain to someone what original sin is, what would you say? How would you phrase it? Just very basically. Maybe think about that for a moment before you listen further. How would you present the Catholic doctrine on original sin? Well, probably you would explain that original sin is the first sin committed by Adam in the Garden of Eden and the consequences of this first sin of disobedience to God, who had commanded Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, included the loss of the supernatural life of sanctifying grace in the soul, not only for Adam and Eve personally, but for all of humanity that would descend from Adam because he, Adam, had acted as the head of the human race. So, original sin and its consequences are transmitted by generation to every descendant of Adam because he had forfeited that gratuitous gift of sanctifying grace with which God had endowed his soul, which was meant not only for him and Eve, but for all of humanity. So, this means that all of us, as Adam's progeny, are conceived and born without sanctifying grace in our souls and with a propensity for sin that's called concupiscence. Furthermore, on account of original sin, we are all subject to pain, suffering, and physical death. That is, more or less, how a Catholic explains original sin and its consequences in a nutshell, because that is what the Catholic Church teaches on the matter. In fact, here's a quote from an encyclical of Pope Pius XI from 1937, in which he defines the meaning of original sin. Quote, Original sin is the hereditary but impersonal fault of Adam's descendants who have sinned in him. It is the loss of grace and therefore of eternal life, together with a propensity to evil, which everybody must, with the assistance of grace, penance, resistance, and moral effort, repress and conquer. The passion and death of the Son of God has redeemed the world from the hereditary curse of sin and death. Unquote. That's paragraph 25 of Pius XI's encyclical Mit Brennender Sorge. Now, this doctrine is absolutely crucial in the Catholic religion because so much depends on it. Because if original sin weren't real, as defined, 
then there would have been no need for a Redeemer, for Jesus Christ incarnate, to restore us to grace. If human nature since the fall weren't afflicted with this absence of the supernatural life of the soul from the moment of conception, then there would be no need for baptism, as every person would then be conceived and born in sanctifying grace, not in sin. Now we know by faith that only the Blessed Virgin Mary was conceived without the stain of original sin, but even that only by a special and singular privilege of God, who communicated the merits of Jesus Christ the Redeemer to her soul in such a way that she was never, even for a moment, under the dominion of the devil. In other words, whereas for everyone else, original sin is taken away by baptism after the stain has been incurred, the Blessed Virgin Mary was prevented from ever contracting it in the first place, by the saving work of Christ. Even though our Lord, of course, hadn't yet come to earth and redeemed us at the time of the Blessed Mother's Immaculate Conception, that is of no concern to God, who is outside of time and not subject to temporal considerations. Anyway, the Catholic teaching on original sin is pretty clear and straightforward. Now let's look at how Joseph Ratzinger Benedict XVI explained original sin in his 1981 Lenten sermon in the Cathedral of Munich. And you will see very quickly that his definition of original sin is totally different from the true Catholic understanding that I just outlined. But what that means is that Ratzinger denies the true concept of original sin because he has substituted for it another. Listen to this. This is Joseph Ratzinger speaking, explaining what he believes original sin means. And I apologize for the awful inclusive translation, but that's what's printed. Quote, Finding an answer to this, this being the question what original sin means, finding an answer to this requires nothing less than trying to understand the human person better. It must once again be stressed that no human being is closed in upon himself or herself and that no one can live of or for himself or herself alone. We receive our life not only at the moment of birth, but every day from without, from others who are not ourselves but who nonetheless somehow pertain to us. Human beings have their selves not only in themselves, but also outside of themselves. They live in those whom they love and in those who love them and to whom they are present. Human beings are relational, and they possess their lives, themselves, only by way of relationship. I alone am not myself, but only in and with you am I myself. To be truly a human being means to be related in love, to be of and for. But sin means the damaging or the destruction of relationality. Sin is a rejection of relationality because it wants to make the human being a god. Sin is loss of relationship, disturbance of relationship, and therefore it is not restricted to the individual. When I destroy a relationship, then this event, sin, touches the other person involved in the relationship. 
Consequently, sin is always an offense that touches others, that alters the world and damages it. To the extent that this is true, when the network of human relationships is damaged from the very beginning, then every human being enters into a world that is marked by relational damage. At the very moment that a person begins human existence, which is a good, he or she is confronted by a sin-damaged world. Each of us enters into a situation in which relationality has been hurt. Consequently, each person is, from the very start, damaged in relationships and does not engage in them as he or she ought. Sin pursues the human being, and he or she capitulates to it. Unquote. That is from Joseph Ratzinger's fourth Lenten sermon of 1981, published in the book In the Beginning, A Catholic Understanding of the Story of Creation and the Fall, translated by Boniface Ramsey, published by Erdmans in 1995. And you can find what I just quoted on pages 72 and 73. In fact, if you go to the show notes, I'm linking our blog post on that, where you can find not only the text that I just quoted, but even a scan of the relevant book pages. So that is how Joseph Ratzinger explains original sin. For him, original sin is essentially a damage in human relationships or a loss of relationship. It's something that comes from without, from outside the individual, or at least from outside the soul, and in fact has apparently nothing to do with the soul. As a matter of fact, the word soul is completely absent from his explanation, and not only that, he also makes no mention of sanctifying grace or of anything supernatural. Well, I mean, he does mention sin, that's true, but he doesn't define sin as a voluntary violation of God's law. He defines it as a rejection of relationality and destruction or loss of relationship. So he remains totally on the level of the natural. But does anyone even know what that means? A rejection of relationality. Does Ratzinger know what it means? Ask five different people and you'll get six different answers. Now, it can certainly be admitted that original sin has something to do with damaged human relationships. There's no doubt about it. He says that as soon as human beings begin their existence, they are confronted by a sin-damaged world. Okay, fine. But that is a consequence of original sin. It is not what original sin is. Remember the quote earlier from Pope Pius XI about original sin being the loss of grace in the soul that we have all inherited from Adam since the fall? Original sin is propagated through generation, wherefore every human being is subject to it because every human being is a child of Adam. And again, the only exception to that is the Blessed Mother because God himself intervened to prevent the stain on her soul. But if you take Ratzinger's view of original sin, what happens to the Immaculate Conception? I mean, considering that even the Virgin Mary was born into a world damaged by sin. So if that's what defines original sin, that every human being is confronted with relational damage, well, you can draw the conclusion. 
So that was from a sermon Ratzinger delivered in 1981. Later that very year, John Paul II appointed him head of the Vatican's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And with that position, he became the official watchdog of orthodoxy. It is laughable. So the long and the short of it is, if you reject Francis and then embrace Benedict... All you're doing is swapping one modernist for another. Don't fool yourself. You haven't escaped the poison. You've simply rejected the more distasteful kind in favor of that which is more pleasant to swallow. So yeah, Benedict and Francis are not that far apart theologically. And why would they be? They are both men of Vatican II and the new theology, through and through. And you can actually see parallels in how they approach theology. For example, we just looked at Ratzinger's idea of original sin, and what we saw is that he took a rather remote secondary aspect of the consequences of original sin, damage in human relationships, and he made that the primary and essential content of the doctrine of original sin, all the while totally ignoring what original sin actually is. So he took what is rather peripheral and made it central. Well, Francis does the same thing, not always, of course, but I would say rather frequently. He zeroes in on a secondary matter that is only remotely related to the gospel, while neglecting, and often contradicting, the primary and proximate things that pertain directly to the core of the gospel. Let me explain what I mean using a quote here from Father Edward Lean's book, Why the Cross, page 54. Father Lean writes the following about naturalists, about people who reject or don't understand the supernatural and spiritual essence of the gospel. Quote, The passages that reveal Jesus in the exercise of works of mercy, in healing disease, in consoling grief, and in overcoming death— are given an undue emphasis by naturalists. In this way, the central truth is obscured, the truth, namely, that the conflict of the Redeemer was primarily with spiritual evil and only incidentally with physical evil. His purpose was to banish from earth the ills that appear to God as such, not those that appear so to the pain-dreading nature of man." Unquote. Now, when you look back at the last nine years of Francis, yes, it's been nine years already, what is it that he is constantly emphasizing? It's the secondary, the more peripheral, the natural and horizontal aspects of the gospel, while either ignoring, de-emphasizing, undermining, or distorting the primary aspects, the central aspects, the most important and supernatural characteristics of the gospel. Not all the time, of course, but quite often, especially when he's in front of a mixed audience, an audience that includes many non-Catholics, especially Jews, Muslims, and pagans. And so Francis is frequently harping on helping those in need, putting the poor at the center, accompanying the marginalized, caressing the unemployed, whatever. Interestingly enough, these are all things that are basically compatible 
with just about any religion. At the same time, Francis has practically no regard for the supernatural. He is simply not interested in saving souls, and I think the reason is that he doesn't believe that souls are in need of salvation. That's why he could say in 2018 that atheists go to heaven if they are good. Well, excuse me, but there is no goodness that has merit before God apart from supernatural charity. And supernatural charity is impossible without sanctifying grace. And there is no sanctifying grace apart from the virtues of faith and hope. So an atheist is excluded from being supernaturally good by definition because he has no faith and consequently also no hope and no charity. Again, supernaturally speaking. So what Francis said there about good atheists implies a denial of original sin, a denial of the necessity of faith, hope, and charity, and a denial of the necessity of a redeemer. The guy is a demon. Similarly, when a homosexual atheist met with Francis in the Vatican in 2019, did the false pope show concern for the supernatural life of his soul? Of course not. Instead, he confirmed him in his sinful ways. I'm talking about the case of Stephen K. Amos, a British comedian. When Amos told Francis that he didn't feel accepted in the Catholic Church because he's a sodomite, did Francis explain to him, however gently and diplomatically, that the church wasn't there to make him feel good, but to lead him to salvation? Did he tell him that we are all sinners who must constantly repent and conform our lives to the gospel? Of course not. Here's what the Frankster told him, quote, We are all human beings and have dignity. It does not matter who you are or how you live your life. You do not lose your dignity. Unquote. That was reported on April 19th, 2019. Link is in the show notes. So obviously, Amos was overjoyed at being told that he can just stay in moral sin and all will be well. The problem is, those who die in the state of mortal sin go to hell. Dignity or no dignity. Of course, there's also a great double standard here. If, instead of being a same-sex pervert, Amos were a hardcore racist who engages in human trafficking and in the exploitation of migrants, who oppresses the poor, defrauds his employees, and trashes the environment for the sake of greed, do you really think Francis would have told him it doesn't matter who you are or how you live your life, you don't lose your dignity? Of course not. And so you see that this Bergolian mercy or accompaniment or whatever you want to call it is applied only very selectively to those sins Bergoglio doesn't have much of a problem with. Yeah, see, Francis is very one-sided. For example, he speaks about the devil, but never about hell. He speaks about the earth, but rarely ever about heaven. He speaks about mercy and forgiveness, 
but he never mentions what qualities our repentance must have in order for us to be eligible for forgiveness. Francis always just mentions asking God for forgiveness, as if that were enough. Well, it's not enough. In fact, while I was preparing this podcast, Francis doubled down on this in a speech he gave on April 23rd to pilgrims of the pastoral community of Our Lady of Tears. Here's what he said, quote, Such is the heart of God. God is waiting. Waiting for what? For forgiveness, to forgive us. He is restless. He is incorrigible. He wants to forgive, to forgive. He only asks that we ask him for forgiveness, unquote. And that was a computerized translation because as of the time of this recording, the Vatican hasn't yet released an official English translation. So if by the time you look into this, if at that point there is an official translation, it will probably be slightly different. So just be aware of that. So Francis keeps saying that all you need to do to be forgiven is ask God for forgiveness. That is totally false. To be forgiven of mortal sin, it is not enough to simply ask God for forgiveness, nor is it enough to go to confession, strictly speaking, because you can go to confession and not be properly disposed. The church teaches that our contrition must have the following qualities in order to be able to receive a valid absolution. It must be interior, supernatural, universal, and sovereign. In the show notes, you'll find a link to an article on contrition from the Catholic Encyclopedia that explains all that. And I'm not trying to cause people to have scruples. I'm just saying it's wrong for Francis to always give the impression that all that is required to be forgiven is to ask for forgiveness. That's just not true. But like I said, Francis ultimately doesn't care about the salvation of souls. And you know what? Perhaps he doesn't even believe in God. That would certainly explain a lot. Let's look at another example. Bergoglio's constant concern about the environment. Now, it's obviously true that we ought not to trash the beautiful planet God has given us. It is part of his creation, and we are to subdue it, but not exploit or destroy it. Okay, fair enough. That has some connection with the gospel, I guess, but it's pretty remote. Now, in 2015, Francis published a super long encyclical on the environment called Laudato Si. And in 2020, the Vatican commemorated the fifth anniversary of that document, which is ridiculous anyway, because what, what kind of an anniversary is year number five? Okay. Uh, anyway, the Vatican commemorated the fifth anniversary of Laudato Si by launching a special Laudato Si year, where they encouraged participation in all kinds of activities and raising awareness, and they also presented a special prayer. And uh, now there's even ecological stations of the cross and whatnot. It's insane. Well, as St. John the Baptist said, he that is of the earth 
Of the earth he is, and of the earth he speaketh. That's John 3, 31. But hey, even if one wants to say that this is important enough a topic for an encyclical and some special Vatican effort, well, where were the special festivities for the 100th anniversary of St. Pius X's encyclical against modernism? Now, granted, that was in 2007, under Benedict XVI, but of course he didn't do anything either. But the 100th anniversary of the death of St. Pius X, that happened under Francis's watch. That was in August of 2014. What did Francis do? We're talking about the 100th anniversary of the death of a pope from the last century that is a canonized saint. Francis didn't so much as mention it. Not one syllable from the man that has something to say about every mudslide in Bolivia. Similarly, you see absolutely no Vatican effort being made to stamp out one of the greatest heresies afflicting the world in our day, and that is religious indifferentism. The idea that it doesn't really matter what you believe, as long as you're sincere, and as long as you have some kind of decent moral code. Especially in the Western world, that heresy is rampant. And of course, it's really apostasy, because if it doesn't matter what you believe... That means that there's salvation in pretty much any religion, and that undermines all of Catholicism at the very root and makes Jesus Christ not only irrelevant, but also a liar. How important it is to adhere to the true gospel of Christ can be seen in countless passages of the New Testament, and among them are the following. Uh, you can look these up for yourself. It's Matthew 12.30. Mark 16.16, 16, Acts 4.12, Galatians 1, verses 8 through 9, and 2 John 9, to mention just a few. Now, of course, we know why the Vatican doesn't care about stamping out that heresy of indifferentism. And that's because the Novus Ordo authorities in the Vatican are actually in favor of it, and none more than Pope Francis himself, who declared in the document on human fraternity with the Muslim Grand Imam Ahmad al-Tayyib, quote, The pluralism and the diversity of religions, color, sex, race, and language are willed by God in his wisdom through which he created human beings, unquote. So yeah, now you know why Francis and his gang constantly emphasize the secondary aspects of the gospel. It's because they've repudiated the primary ones. They've abandoned the central supernatural teachings of the gospel, and so they must necessarily reduce the gospel to the humanitarian aspect of love of neighbor without, however, subordinating that love to the proper love of God. Just a few months before issuing his condemnation of modernism with the encyclical Pascendi, Pope St. Pius X gave an address to cardinals gathered at the Vatican 
in which he described the modernists as follows. Listen closely and see if this doesn't sound familiar. Quote, Rebellious are those who profess and spread under subtle guises the monstrous errors regarding the evolution of dogma, the return to the pure gospel, that is to say, stripped down, as they say, from the explanations of theology, from the definitions of the councils, from the maxims of asceticism, and the emancipation from the church, but in a new way, without rebelling so as not to be cut off, yet also without submitting, so as not to violate their own convictions. And finally, concerning adaptation to the times in everything, in speaking, in writing, and in preaching, a charity without faith, very accommodating to unbelievers, which unfortunately opens the way to eternal ruin for all. You can see, venerable brothers, how we, who must defend with all our strength the deposit entrusted to us, have reason to be in anguish in the face of this attack, which is not a heresy, but the synthesis and the poison of all heresies, which seeks to undermine the foundations of the faith and annihilate Christianity." And all these and a thousand other errors they propagate in pamphlets, in magazines, in ascetic books, and even in novels, and they wrap them in certain ambiguous terms, in certain nebulous expressions, in order always to leave a way open in their defense so as to avoid incurring an open condemnation, and yet to take the unwary in their snares." Unquote. That's from the elocution Acoliamo of April 17th, 1907 by Pope Pius X. You'll find the link to the full text in the show notes. Folks, does this not sound almost exactly like what we see in our day? The inevitable consequence of the modernist heresy is the annihilation of the religion Jesus Christ founded. Now, of course, we know that the modernists cannot ultimately succeed because the Catholic Church and the Catholic faith are indestructible. But the point is that modernism is of such a nature that the foundations of the true religion are undermined by it and thereby the destruction of all dogmas is assured if this heresy of heresies is embraced. And that is why Catholicism has fallen apart since the Second Vatican Council, because modernist ideas were introduced under the cover of ambiguity, not only by words, but also by actions and omissions, by exaggeration, by a shift of emphasis, and similar tactics, and the result is the utter mess that is the Vatican II Church, an institution that is a theological zoo in which just about anything goes except pre-Vatican II Catholicism. All right, before we continue, a few quick housekeeping items. First, I'd like to give a quick shout-out to all of you dear souls out there who have been supporting the Novus Ordo Watch Apostolate financially, spiritually, and also with volunteer work and sharing our content. 
You're very much appreciated. And your work, your generosity are the reason why we don't currently have to have special fundraising campaigns that usually require a lot of time and energy. So I'm very grateful for that. Anyone interested in making a financial contribution can do so at novosordowatch.org slash donate. novosordowatch.org slash donate or simply go to the show notes and you will find a link there as well. On another note, in recent weeks, I have been interviewed on two separate podcast shows. So if you have not already seen or heard those, you can check the links in the show notes. One was with Kevin Davis at the Catholic Family Podcast, released on March 23rd, and that's on video. So if you've always wondered what I look like, you'll be able to find out. The other one was with Stephen Heiner on the True Restoration podcast, Restoration Radio, and it was released on April 18th, and that one is audio only. And uh, the two interviews cover quite a bit of different ground. The one with Kevin Davis is mostly about the work of Novos Ordo Watch and a little behind-the-scenes stuff and some current issues, and the one with Stephen Heiner is mostly about my person, my background, especially my conversion story from the Novos Ordo religion to real Catholicism, and also how Novos Ordo Watch began. In any case, if you're interested, you can check out those two podcasts. The links are found in the show notes. And uh, lastly, I apologize to all of you who've emailed Novos Ordo Watch and are still waiting for a reply. It's uh, simply becoming more and more difficult to keep up with one-on-one correspondence. There just aren't enough hours in the day. All right, and uh, now I have an idea. We'll take a quick break and be right back. It's not just a podcast. It's It's a a Trapcast. Trapcast. Are you a traditional Catholic homeschooling family looking for a solid curriculum? Or are you just interested in great Catholic books? Then visit stjeromelibrary.org and learn more about our extensive traditional Catholic offerings, including lesson plans and materials for preschool to grade 12. Operating since 2018, St. Jerome Library and School is run by a traditional Catholic Sid of a Contest family. St. Jerome School uses both classic and original books, including works by our clergy, such as Bishop Donald Sanborn and the late Father Anthony Cicada. Nothing should be compromised when it comes to the faith, especially not our children's education. Visit stjeromelibrary.org, that's S-T-J-E-R-O-M-E, library.org. We 
hope you are enjoying the sample of the motet Felix Nancoyes from the album Sacred Choral Music by Nicholas Wilton, sung by the acclaimed English choir Magnificat. If you appreciate such sacred choral music, please support the traditional Catholic composer Nicholas Wilton by buying a copy of his CD or purchasing downloads of individual tracks from fourmarksmusic.com. That is, F-O-U-R-M-A-R-K-S-M-U-S-I-C.com or his website, catholicmusic.co.uk. There is more information and also a new CD of his piano music available on those websites. Back again, back with another segment of Tratcast 32. It's a good thing you stuck around because there's lots more content coming at you now. And we'll start with a few news items. First, Kennedy Hall calumniates Sedevacantism in an article posted at Crisis Magazine on April 8th, 2022. It's called Too Many Red Pills Can Be Bad for Your Health. And Inet Hall argues that it's a good thing to see through the lies and partial truths one has been fed so as to arrive at reality, but that we shouldn't overdo it and question reality itself. And that, he claims, is what Sedevacantism does. Here's what he says. Quote, We might see through an unhealthy ultramontanism or papalism in the church in recent decades, but then we go one step further and begin to doubt the papacy as a whole, falling into the new matrix of sedevacantism, an ecclesial view based on partial, even if convincing, truths that require speculation about things we simply cannot know. Unquote. Now, that's just garbage. Okay, and let me say up front that I have no problem with someone who says that he's not convinced by the set of Akana's position and believes it to be false. So I'm okay with people criticizing set of Akantism as long as the position is presented fairly and the criticism is reasonable. But that's not the case here. Set of Akantism is not a matter of doubting the papacy. And if Hall doesn't understand that, he shouldn't be talking about it. Instead, Zedevacantism is the very opposite of doubting the papacy. It's actually taking the papacy extremely seriously. So seriously, in fact, that we actually believe what the unquestionably true popes have taught about it. Zedevacantism isn't a more extreme position than the recognize and resist position that Hall espouses, it is a fundamentally different position. The Sedevacantist 
is not a Lefebvreist who has decided that in addition to resisting the papal magisterium, he's also going to throw out the popes themselves, because who's going to stop him? Instead, the Sedevacantist is a Catholic who recognizes, per the traditional teaching, that all Catholics must assent to everything the Pope teaches, not just the infallible stuff, and then tries to apply that to the supposed popes after Pius XII and notices that that's not possible without at the same time abandoning the traditional Catholic faith of 2,000 years. Yes, the Novus Ordo Magisterium presents a new religion, and even many recognized and resistors acknowledge that. And therefore, the Sedevacantist concludes necessarily that the apparent popes who have been imposing this new religion by their magisterium cannot possibly be true popes. The only other conclusion would be that the doctrine of the papacy itself is false. But that would mean that Catholicism is false, and obviously that would be heresy. And so we are said of a contest precisely because we believe in the papacy, not because we doubt it. We are said of a contest because with all our hearts we wish to be and forever remain Catholics. We believe in Catholicism. We believe in the papacy. That is why we're said of a contest. It's not because we've lost faith in the papacy. No, we believe in the papacy so much that we recognize that an apostate like Jorge Bergoglio doesn't qualify for the office. And the results prove it. So what Kennedy Hall did there is he grossly misrepresented the state of Akanda's position. He created a straw man he could easily knock down. But that's not honest, and it's not right. Again, it's fine if he wants to say that he doesn't believe Sedevacantism is correct. We can talk about that. But then he needs to present it accurately and explain why he doesn't find the position convincing. All right, moving on. On April 7th, the conservative Novus Ordo publication The Wanderer released an article by the Reverend Kevin Kusick entitled heretical bishops must not be obeyed. Now, when I came across that, I chuckled because I thought, isn't that interesting? All of a sudden, these people remember that one can, in fact, recognize a public and manifest heretic, even without a legal church judgment. See, it's only when arguing against state of accountism that this issue about the legal declaration comes up. Not really at other times. Although, to be fair, I don't know if this particular author, the Reverend Kusick, or even the Wanderer as a whole has explicitly said in the past that one cannot say whether someone is a heretic without an official judgment. Both the author and the publication, though, are obviously opposed to Sedevacantism, and that is typically one of the main arguments used against us that we can't say so-and-so is a heretic because there first need to be warnings and then a declaration or whatever. So next time that comes up, remind your opponent that 
even Novus Ordo clergy have no problem recognizing heretics when the heresy is manifest. And in this particular article, Kusig is talking about the heresies of the German synodal way. And he says directly about the chief German Novus Ordo bishop, Georg Betzing, quote, Betzing is no longer Catholic and can no longer be entrusted with the care of souls if he does not understand and believe that something remains true even if no one believes it, unquote. Well, Kusik has a problem, though. His supposed pope believes Betzing is a Catholic. And you know why? Because his pope isn't a Catholic either. All right, next let's go to an article published on LifeSite on March 17th, 2022, by Stephen Cox. The title is why I stand with Archbishop Vigano and his analysis of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Now, don't worry, I'm not interested in the Russia-Ukraine debate one way or another. I just want to focus on something that the author said in that piece. But before I do that, let me mention that I have said for a while now that many semi-trads, many recognize and resist traditionalists, consider Vigano much more of a pope than Francis. Not, of course, in terms of him literally holding the office of the papacy, but as far as following him, reverencing him, giving him attention, and perhaps even a kind of obedience. Basically, accepting him as a kind of de facto pope, certainly way more than they ever would for Francis. In the show notes, I've put three tweets from the past two years where I've said that, where I've said that Vigano is treated as a quasi-pope by many semi-trads. Now let's look at what Stephen Cox wrote. This is March 17, 2022, and I quote, Let me say I believe Archbishop Vigano is the answer to decades of prayers and penance by Catholics who have begged God to send them a prelate who can see through the lies of the world and guide them through the fog that has enveloped the church. In this regard, I view him as a sort of Old Testament prophet. This isn't to say he's impeccable, for no human being is, but I can't recall a single public statement His Excellency has made that doesn't read like one of the great social encyclicals of the 19th century. Even his critics would be hard-pressed to deny the gifts of the Holy Spirit are plainly visible in his writings. It seems to me God is giving him graces otherwise reserved for a pope. Unquote. And there you go. They've got their de facto prophet and their de facto pope. Now, what does that say about their supposedly real pope? Well, obviously, the assistance of God is not visible in him in any way, shape, or form, and there is nothing to distinguish him from any other non-pope. Now, while we're on this topic, let's take a look also at what Jason Morgan published over at The Remnant the other day. This piece is entitled, Say Your Prayers, Francis Church, and was put up on April 12th. 
Sad to say, it is yet another manifesto of schizophrenic ecclesiology. Here are some quotations from the article. Quote, The Novus Ordo regime, what I have been calling New Church, left the company of the Catholic Church the moment Traditionis Custodes went into effect. New Church removed itself from the protective canopy of the Mass and installed itself as a separate false church in opposition to the Bride of Christ. Until July 16, 2021, I prayed for New Church, so did many other Catholics. But now the prayers of the faithful and those of the Novus Ordo regime are at odds. Their prayers are the opposite of ours. We do not pray in unison any longer. Traditionis Custodes ensures that we can't. The fictive link has been abandoned. New Church has nothing to do with the Catholic Church. New Church's prayers are now insults to the living God. And then a little bit later, he says, The Novus Ordo regime is the devil, clothed in vestments, laughing at Christ crucified and at his mother at the foot of the cross. Those who are still in the pews at New Church masses sink deeper into this blasphemy with each passing day. It is time to end New Church. Let us have this thing out once and for all. You say your prayers, New Church. Call on your idols and pretenders, your false prophets and apostate priests. Unquote. So remember, the remnant is not Sedevacantist. They recognize and resist. They believe Francis is the Pope. They believe the Vatican institution is the Catholic Church. They believe the people that make up the Novus Ordo regime are the legitimate Roman Catholic shepherds with ordinary jurisdiction. Okay, so you can't make the stuff up. This is completely messed up anti-Catholic theology. And yet the remnant prints this as top-notch traditional Catholic commentary. And then when people take this stuff to heart and actually escape new church, run away from it because they realize Francis cannot be the Pope, why then Michael Matt, the remnant's editor, comes out and yells at people for abandoning the church, for giving up on Christ. Remember that? We covered this in Tratcast number 29, where I presented some sound bites from Mr. Matt, and there's no need to repeat that all here. You can just click on the link in the show notes that will take you to Tratcast 29, and uh, it begins at the 39-minute, 29-second mark. Tratcast. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we return to one of our most popular segments, From the Jorge's Mouth. From the Jorge's Mouth. From the Jorge's mouth. Jorge being, of course, Jorge Bergoglio, the man who deceives the world by presenting himself as the Pope of the Catholic Church, when in actual fact he is but a modernist apostate who teaches a lot of things, but certainly not Roman Catholicism. 
Well, well, what do we have here? On April 2nd, 2022, Francis took a quick trip to the island of Malta, where, by the way, they built a temporary ramp made of concrete and reportedly costing about $48,000 only for him for that particular visit so that Francis and his motorcade could easily get off a catamaran. And indeed, that is what happened. The ramp was used for a total of 200 seconds. And so it's already been demolished again because it was purposely built in such a way that it was not going to last. So they tore it down again after it had served its purpose. And you can find the link to the Times of Malta in the show notes and read all about it there. Yeah, so Francis went to Malta on April 2nd, and while he was there, he also, of course, met with his fellow Jesuits, as is his custom for trips abroad, where he lets them ask questions so he can then share his profound insights with the ears that are blessed enough to be present for the occasion. And so one question was the following. How do you connect evangelization and climate change? Yeah, no doubt that is one of the burning questions all evangelists around the world are asking. But more interesting was Francis' answer. He said, quote, Not taking care of the climate is a sin against the gift of God that is creation. For me, it is a form of paganism. It is using what the Lord has given us for his glory and praise as if it were an idol. Not taking care of creation for me is like idolizing it, reducing it to an idol, detaching it from the gift of creation. In this sense, taking care of our common home is already evangelizing, and it is urgent. If things go on as they are now, our children will no longer be able to live on our planet. Unquote. You know, this nonsense pretty much speaks for itself. I mean, what do you say to that? How do you take care of the climate? The climate you can look this up in a dictionary, the climate is the average weather conditions over a long period of time for a particular region. So what he's saying is that if we don't try to influence the weather conditions in our area, we're violating the divine law, because that's what a sin is. This is nuts. And isn't it interesting how all of a sudden this Jesuit apostate is concerned about sin. Well, you know, in his 2016 so-called apostolic exhortation Amoris Laetitia, in paragraph 303, he claimed that sometimes God may actually want you to commit adultery. That's fine, according to the Frankster. No problem. Because when God said, thou shalt not commit adultery, well, he didn't really mean it. Right? He meant it would be good if you didn't commit adultery most of the time. So I guess there must have been an asterisk with that commandment. Little footnote there. But heaven forbid you're not doing your part to influence what the weather will be like in 50 years from now. Now that is serious business. You're sinning, bro. You just can't make the stuff up. So, Francis says that for him, 
not taking care of the climate, like you would take care of grandma, I guess, not taking care of the climate is a form of paganism. Well, since when does he have a problem with paganism? It's certainly not at the Amazon Senate in 2019. That's when paganism was brought into the churches of Rome, including especially St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. That's when the wooden figurines of the naked pregnant woman were worshipped in the Vatican gardens. Francis himself called them Pachamama statues. Pachamama is a pagan earth goddess. Uh, but, hey, he didn't have a problem with that because, as he said later, they weren't there with idolatrous intentions. Well, that's nice. But I guess if people don't buy into the climate hysteria, then that's idolatry with idolatrous intentions. Why is anybody listening to this fool? Sorry, folks, but we're not done yet with the Jorge's mouth. On Easter Sunday, Francis unloaded some more of his infinite wisdom as part of a program broadcast on the state-run Italian television channel Rayuno. The name of the program translates as Faces of the Gospels. The English edition of Vatican News put together a report on it. And there's just one thing I'd like to focus on that Francis said, and it's this. Quote, there is a word that explains a feeling when there is an encounter or there is not an encounter. When I encounter the Lord in his word, there is this feeling of amazement. Astonishment comes when you encounter the Lord. If you read the gospel intellectually as something historical, you will never feel wonder. Astonishment is precisely the scent that God is passing by. He leaves you with this. Many times we read a passage of the gospel and another time we fall on the same one. But it doesn't matter because one day, knock on wood, you are touched by amazement and we understand what is behind it. This is the presence of Jesus. Jesus is present in the gospels. He is present. That's why you can't read it like a novel or a collection of fairy tales. No, no. But how do you feel the amazement? Do I have to take some pills? Someone may say to me, no, just take the gospel with simplicity and love, and it will be God who will give you amazement. Unquote. Well, that was just amazing, wasn't it? Look, this may sound really sweet and spiritual at first, but it's actually quite shallow and, in fact, dangerous. Why is that? Does God not amaze us? Oh, yes, he does. Do we not encounter Christ when we read the gospel? Yes, we do. However, a particular feeling or experience of amazement or encounter cannot be the basis of our faith because feelings and experiences are subjective and can be caused by all sorts of things. So, What's wrong with what Francis said? Let's go through it step by step. So he said, when I encounter the Lord in his word, there is this feeling of amazement. Well, that may or may not be so. What qualifies as encountering the Lord in his word anyway? Is it simply reading the scriptures? And if so, what if I do not feel this amazement? 
Maybe I'm not feeling well. Maybe I'm bedridden and suffering greatly because of a terminal illness, right? So if I don't experience this feeling of amazement, what does that mean? Does that mean God doesn't love me? That God has abandoned me? That I'm going to hell? Francis simply claims that there is an experience of amazement. But as soon as you ask some simple, rational questions about it, you can see how quickly it all falls apart. So he says further, astonishment comes when you encounter the Lord. Again, it's another assertion made without evidence. Of course, the term encounter is subjective already, and he doesn't define it, so it's not even clear what that's supposed to mean. Not all encounters are positive, by the way. Okay? Uh, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah also encountered the Lord, and it didn't go so well. Anyway, let's just assume as true Francis' claim that astonishment comes when you encounter the Lord. You know what? Astonishment also comes from all kinds of other encounters. The devil, too, can astonish you. Ask Adam and Eve. So can your spouse, by the way, or your boss, the car in front of you, or the IRS. So that doesn't get us anywhere. Bergoglio's sentimental metaphorical assertion that astonishment is precisely the scent that God is passing by is perhaps quite poetic, but it really has no substance. It's just fluff. It sounds good, but there's nothing there. So Francis says that you can feel the presence of Jesus when you have this astonishment, this experience of wonder. Right? He says, just take the gospel with simplicity and love, and it will be God who will give you amazement. Well, whether or not God chooses to give you a perceptible consolation is up to him, and that will depend on whether such consolation is even good for you. Because it's easy to get attached to feelings, and in the end, you're looking for feelings rather than for God. Right? So, I mean, that's a certain danger. But Francis, of course makes it seem like experience and encounter is what it's all about. Well, if that were so, then what do you do if, say, a Mormon tells you that he gets this kind of experience, this amazement, this encounter stuff, when reading the Book of Mormon? Or a Christian scientist when reading the writings of Mary Baker Eddy? Or a Jehovah's Witness when reading The Watchtower? or a Muslim when reading the Koran, or a Jew when reading the Talmud. Well, it's checkmate. France's subjective experience-based theology can justify any religion. It's modernist. In fact, let's have a quick look at Pope St. Pius X's encyclical Against Modernism because he speaks about the role subjective experience plays in the modernist system. He writes, quote, What is to prevent such experiences from being found in any religion? In fact, that they are so is maintained by not a few. On what grounds can modernists deny the truth of an experience affirmed by a follower of Islam? Will they claim a monopoly of true experiences for Catholics alone? Indeed, modernists do not deny but actually maintain some confusedly, others frankly, that all religions are true, unquote. That's from the encyclical Pascendi, 
issued in 1907. It's paragraph number 14. Yes, so Francis' theology logically leads to saying that all religions are true. And now you know why Francis has said that religious differences are necessary, that God wills there to be a diversity of religions, and that the different religions manifest the richness of different ways of coming to God. Yes, he really said all of these things. Check the show notes. Jorge Bergoglio is a modernist. And last but definitely not least, I'd like briefly to talk about a curious scripture passage found in the Old Testament. I'm talking about Isaiah's chapter 22. And this is something someone on Twitter made me aware of a while back, and uh, I'm afraid I don't even remember who it was, so I can't give credit here, but I really thought I should bring it up. Before we look at a few verses of Isaiah 22, let's first recall what our blessed Lord said to Simon Peter at Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. Quote, and I say to thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind upon earth, it shall be bound also in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose upon earth, it shall be loosed also in heaven. Unquote. Now this as we know, announces the institution of the papacy, with Simon Peter being designated as the first pope, which office was conferred on him after the resurrection when Christ told him, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. That's in John 21, 15 through 17. Now, the giving of the keys of heaven to St. Peter is prefigured in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 22, verses 20 through 22, as follows, quote, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Helsius, and I will clothe him with thy robe, and will strengthen him with thy girdle, and will give thy power into his hand. And he shall be as a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah." And I will lay the key of the house of David upon his shoulder, and he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. Unquote. This passage is traditionally understood to be a foreshadowing of the papacy, and it's easy to see why. Eliakim, mentioned here, was the regent, the administrator of the kingdom of Judah, while King Manasseh was in the hands of the Assyrians. And so Eliakim received the power of the keys, meaning the power to rule in the king's stead during his absence, which foreshadows the papacy inasmuch as the pope is the vicar of Christ, while our heavenly king is absent from this world, so to speak, until he returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. So that's the traditional understanding. But that's not even what I want to focus on here. I'm just mentioning this for context, for background. Because the passage in Isaiah 22 continues, and that's where it gets really interesting. Listen to this. 
quote, and I will fasten him, him being Eliakim, and I will fasten him as a peg in a sure place, and he shall be for a throne of glory to the house of his father. And they shall hang upon him all the glory of his father's house, diverse kinds of vessels, every little vessel from the vessels of cups even to every instrument of music. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, shall the peg be removed that was fastened in the sure place, and it shall be broken and shall fall, and that which hung thereon shall perish, because the Lord hath spoken it. Unquote. That's Isaiah 22, verses 23 through 25. Now, if we remember that Eliakim's role is foreshadowing the papacy, this could be foreshadowing the time when the papacy is removed, is taken out of the way for a time to allow the mystery of iniquity to advance, as is prophesied in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, with that in mind, let's look at that passage again, and this time I'm using the Monsignor Ronald Knox translation to make it easier to understand. Quote, I will fix him securely in his place, like a peg that is to carry all the royal honor of his father's house. All the honor of his father's house will rest upon him, as a man's goods rest on a peg, the smaller of them, here a cooking pan, there an instrument of music. A day is coming, says the Lord of hosts, when the peg that was once securely fixed will be dislodged from its place. Suddenly it must break and fall, and all that hung from it be ruined. The Lord decrees it. Unquote. Isn't that an interesting scripture passage? To be clear, I am not claiming that this is definitely a prophecy of our state of prolonged sede vacante. All I would say is that such an interpretation of the passage seems possible, and in what I've researched, I have not seen anything that would rule it out as a possibility. And of course, many scripture passages have more than one meaning, right? Because there are different senses of scripture, so it's not like it can only mean one thing. In any case, whatever all the possible meanings of this passage may be, it's very clear that in the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope is the linchpin, the peg, as it were, holding everything together. Remove him for a long period of time, and it all falls to pieces. The last 60 years have proved that beyond the shadow of a doubt. But let that not be a reason for sadness, much less for despair, because all this only serves to prove and confirm the truth of the Holy Roman Catholic religion. And with that, we've come to the end of Tratcast 32. Thank you for listening. I hope it was worth your time. And maybe you want to tell others about it. Keep in mind, friends don't let friends be Novos Ordo. Also, remember to check the show notes for all the documentation of today's content. And please tune in again next time. Until then, God bless.
Trapcast. <laughs>